Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. With divided government, what are the political realities? The president is increasingly frustrated. I want to try to cut through the noise. Politically, this is devastating. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. It is no secret that I care a lot about the consumers. There are real questions about big tech. We still have more leverage to use with the tariffs. I think we can do with a little less drama from the White House. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM. HD2 Baltimore. Happy rainy Monday, folks. Still no deal up on Capitol Hill. I was uh, in Congress earlier today and trying to get some read on the situation, and it looks like lawmakers are scrambling. They've got to get to some type of deal to avert another government shutdown by Friday. My colleague Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government congressional reporter, he was also up on Capitol Hill today. He's with me for the hour to help walk through this as President Trump heads, well, to the border. He's speaking tonight in El Paso, Texas. We'll get uh, the full read on what the president is expected to say. Uh, I guess El Paso isn't technically right along the border, but it close is enough. It's, it's close enough. Thanks, Jack. Uh, and Daniel Lippman, my buddy and good friend, Politico Playbook co-author, he'll also help get through the news of the day because we're following trade. We're following the 2020 race. Two new senators jumped into the race over the weekend. We're going to get into that, as well as some controversy with a freshman Democratic House member. But first, this just in from my colleague Eric Wasson, who's up on Capitol Hill in Congress right now, and that is that lawmakers are going to be meeting, bipartisan group of lawmakers, they're going to be meeting at 6 o'clock tonight, so throughout the evening, as they try to negotiate some type of a deal to keep the government open, keep the government funded, ahead of that Friday deadline. Now, all of this comes while lawmakers are going to be meeting tonight. President Trump is en route to El Paso, and he's going to be giving a campaign-style type of speech about, well, none else than, than the border uh, and the wall or enhanced fencing, steel slats, uh, smart wall, um, whatever folks are calling it these days. Jack Fitzpatrick, my colleague, Bloomberg government congressional reporter, he was up on Capitol Hill all day today, and Daniel Littman, Politico Playbook co-author, good friend of the program as well. Uh, they're my guests for the hour. And Jack, so I was struck by the confusion among the staff level earlier today because I don't I'm getting a mixed result. I think some staffers are optimistic, others are not optimistic, which kind of leaves me the impression that no one really knows what's going to happen. Yeah, it's, I think there's some sincerity in the negotiations, and I think everybody believes that no one really wants a shutdown, but it, nobody is really confident, like they were probably last Thursday and Friday, that they will actually avoid a shutdown. So what changed? Because Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Richard Shelby, a Republican from Louisiana, really working throughout the weekend, I know you had to work yesterday, uh, was very optimistic. He was at the White House last week 
meeting with President Trump, and, and they seemed optimistic. So what happened? Uh, so it, it came across in a, a weird way. This used to all be about the wall, fence, slats, that issue. Uh, and then oh, yeah, that. it was really Sunday morning uh, when we started hearing that things had stalled because of this proposal by Democrats, particularly House Democrats. They want not only uh, a funding limit for ICE detention beds uh, that would limit how many people they can arrest, but also an interior limit that they say would effectively force ICE to focus on people who are actually committing crimes rather than just everyone who is in the country and is undocumented. So one could read that two ways. My initial reaction when I heard these reports earlier today, uh, or over the weekend, but then asking people about it was we're talking about beds. Then the follow-up, the second reaction is, okay, well, if they're not talking about the wall, maybe they're actually a lot further along than, than we had thought. Yeah, they got pretty far along. We didn't end up with a specific number that they had settled on for physical barriers. There's probably still some negotiations going on on that. But the fact that they jumped to another issue. Beds. Uh, yes, beds. The detention ICE. I, I mean, you could read that as a good thing, that the previously most challenging issue uh, wasn't the forefront issue on their mind. But you could also see that this is uh, Pelosi probably feeling some pressure from the left wing of the party who have wanted uh, reeling back ICE to be a bigger issue for Democrats. All right, let's take a listen to what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had to say about where talks are. Take a listen. Some House Democrats are risking a second partial government shutdown by calling for this absurd last-minute poison pill. The poison pill being beds. Right. So can you just explain in layman's terms what the issue of the beds is? Yeah. Uh, if, it, it's really not entirely new. Democrats have brought this up before. A few weeks ago, they said that they want limited, wanted limits on beds. We're talking about beds because if you don't have beds to give people when you have detained them, then you aren't allowed to actually keep them there and detain them there. So this is so let me, not I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I, but I think if you're outside, if you're on your way home from work and you're, and you're hearing beds or you're following Twitter, you're like, beds, why are they talking about beds? Is because... If you, that, what you just said is important because if, if you don't have the beds at the ICE detaining center, then you cannot hold someone who is detained over. Right. It's, it's a way of measuring units of arrests, basically. That's okay. how many people they can hold on to. And previously, the negotiations were maybe 50,000 beds or 45,000 beds, and that wasn't a totally killer issue for these negotiations. Democrats, not at the last minute, but a few weeks ago, and increasingly have said, we want a separate limit, saying, look, you can arrest people who come across the border, at the border illegally, but also when you're going throughout the country, you have to focus on people who are committing crimes. You can't, they, they've brought up a bunch of issues do where they, they don't do, want them to go into churches or to right. courthouses or bus stops to stop do people. Do we know how, so you said about 53,000, it was, is the current? 50, uh, Republicans wanted 52,000. And Democrats, Democrats want wanted 45,000 and change, but within that, a separate cap. So, I mean, Daniel Littman, co-author of Political Playbook, I mean, the, the, this beds issue is really a way for Democrats to say that they don't want to see this spike in detainees. Yeah, they, they view that the Trump's focus on interior enforcement, that's what they call it, which is finding, you know, groups of people in those in that illegal immigrant community and deporting them back to Mexico or Central America. 
if they're going to give up some, you know, a billion dollars or two on, you know, building a wall or building barriers, as the new word is, then they need to show their liberal base that they didn't give away the house. Isn't this just fascinating to see how behind the scenes these deals get made in Congress? Because somewhere, somehow, there's a staffer going over these lines, and a Democratic staffer, and saying, what is the mechanism that we can get to try to pressure the administration to cut back on the number of folks that they are detaining? And the way that they... D- that did this, to Jack's point, is is through bets. Here's what Congressman Garamendi, a friend of the program, a Democrat from California, here's what he had to say about all of this uh, earlier. Take a listen. They have absolutely no appetite for a shutdown, and neither do the Democrats. We don't want a shutdown. We want to work this out, and we will. There's a lot of huffing and puffing going on now, but there's a very, very clear path to get this done. That was Congressman John Garamendi, John Garamendi, a Democrat from California, uh, over the weekend speaking on uh, the Sunday shows. Coming up, we've got much more on the debate around keeping the government open. Lawmakers are expected to, to be working uh, this evening. Uh, plus, more from President Trump. He's headed to El Paso, Texas, to talk about all of this. Will he talk about the issue of the beds? Uh, and much more on, on policy front. Remember, guys, you can check out our uh, our program now and by downloading the Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find us on Radio.com and on iHeartRadio. Panel says, I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I listen to the pundits in Washington and elsewhere talk about the who won and who lost in the shutdown. There were no winners in that prior shutdown. We have 13,000 federal employees here in El Paso. There were no winners. That was El Paso Mayor DeMargo. He is the mayor of El Paso. Uh, speaking earlier today, just ahead of President Trump's visit to El Paso tonight, the president set to deliver what is likely going to be another campaign-style speech. This, as lawmakers, meanwhile, back here in Washington, D.C., the bipartisan group of them will be meeting to continue to try to work on getting a deal ahead of Friday's deadline to avert another government shutdown. Daniel Lippman is the co-author of Politico Playbook, a friend of the program, and Jack Fitzpatrick, my colleague, a congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. Jack, we were talking in the break that how lawmakers are negotiating, or Democrats are trying to get the threshold of, of, of uh, ICE beds lowered from about 50, low 50,000, and Democrats want it in the mid 40,000s, but we're not talking about beds. We're talking about lowering the number of arrests. Yeah, we're talking about the number of arrests and particularly uh, not just people at the border, but people who have been in the U.S. Democrats say if you're going to arrest them, you need to prioritize people who have actually committed crimes rather than just people who are here and are undocumented. That's really the big issue. I mean, Dan, do you think that uh, that President Trump tonight is going to be aware of just how fragile – Jack, you would agree these – negotiations are fragile right now yeah definitely. yeah <laughs> do, do you think president trump when he takes the podium tonight that he is going to ac- accept that these are fragile negotiations or is he just going to go hardcore build the wall 
I think even though he accepts that they are fragile and he may talk about how Democrats in Congress, as he accuses of them, are not uh, – they don't care about arresting illegal immigrants in the U.S., that's the argument he's going to make that they uh, are trying to prevent him from taking off violent murderers uh, off the streets when, in fact, the reality is uh, Democrats want uh, the Trump administration and ICE to focus more on – the people who are most violent, not just let's get all the farm workers who have not uh, you know, gotten a single uh, criminal violation. It'll be interesting to see the tone he takes in this speech, but keep in mind, he's kind of compartmentalized, and so have the lawmakers. When you look back at his State of the Union, he dedicated some time to immigrants committing crime, calling for building the wall, and then Republicans and Democrats came out and said, actually, he's been pretty hands-off in these negotiations, so we're not that concerned about his rhetoric as long as he doesn't draw red lines for us. That's interesting, because on the one hand, he has been quite hands-off. But on the other hand, he's gotten a ton of criticism from people like Ann Coulter, as well as other conservatives in the conservative space for, I guess, being hands-off, but on the other side, just but, but speaking so aggressively on the issue. Right. For, for ending the shutdown without gaining anything, for talking the talk and not really getting something substantial out of it. Uh, I mean, we still have yet to see exactly what he's going to get, how much money he's going to get for barriers. And he has to choose sort of between that as a priority and these other issues, focusing on ICE, uh, focusing on when he called for limits to asylum seekers for Central America. I mean, I don't think Trump has entirely uh, decided how broad he wants this to be or how focused he is on the wall and the fence you know and and you know stephen miller acolytes and the you know strict immigration community uh who are for tighter restrictions on immigration they are urging trump to stay fast and not get confused by the number so if uh he you know if the border security package is six billion dollars and only 1.5 of it is for wall or barriers and then there is a cap on the number of ICE uh, detention beds that is more uh, to the Democrats' liking. They don't want Trump to just say, well, big number. Uh, they want them him to focus on the specific figure involved in terms of those barriers that he's obsessed with. See, only Daniel Lippman from Politico Playbook could get that into the Swedes <laughs> and specific on the numbers because, like me, he is a massive political junkie. I was just pulling up what the president had to tweet out, and I went into my recent search history on Twitter, and it's literally only one person, at real Donald Trump. So. Wow. Kudos to me and Lippman for not having any life. You should outside. look at other people on you know? <laughs> Well, and that I'm searching for. But he did tweet out for what it's worth today. Quote, the Democrats do not want us to detain or send back criminal aliens. This is a brand new demand. Crazy. Now, for moderate Democrats, Jack, uh, and you were telling me in the break, I mean, you, you caught up with Senator Joe Manchin uh, earlier today. What did he have to tell you about sort of where he stands on this? He'll be on our show tomorrow. Right. But what did he say yeah, brief interaction today. There weren't a lot of lawmakers on the Hill until this meeting, but I caught Joe Manchin and asked, you know, what do you think about this demand from Democrats limiting ICE? And he said, that's that's not a good idea to me. Uh, that's not surprising from someone like Joe Manchin. But going forward, the question is, how many members throughout the caucus in the Senate and in the House do you lose? And can you actually consolidate enough support to you know, pass something in the House with 218 plus Democrats if you're going to lose some 
moderates and centrists because of this. This is such a big story here inside of the Beltway, as well as throughout the country. 800,000 federal employees impacted by uh, a partial government shutdown. And let, let us not forget the small businesses who also, from a supply side of this, will also be impacted should the government not be fully funded yet traders up on Wall Street not necessarily moving off of every um, nuance and every new development and every twist in this story. What they are carefully watching is the other big uh, financial story for this week, and that, of course, is uh, the delegation of U.S. officials who are headed to Beijing to have trade talks and led, of course, by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer. They're going to be uh, meeting with Beijing counterparts. Uh, they leave Wednesday and Thursday, Valentine's Day, uh, Valentine's <laughs> Day trade talks. Uh, they'll, Very romantic. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, uh, they'll, be, they'll be talking and trying to get to some type of a consensus on that front. We're carefully watching that. Uh, President Trump, for his part, has been speaking much more positively about President Xi than he has about Democrats that he has to negotiate a trade deal. I don't know if loves those dictators. Uh, now, well, I don't think anyone's refer. Okay, well, Lippman, you're going to get me in trouble. We're no, just no, gonna I'm just carefully- telling the Kim Jong-un love letters, Vladimir Putin, I could go on. We're going to we're gonna keep moving through this segment. Uh President Trump is, though, he's going to be in Vietnam uh, and Southeast Asia. And and as of now, no record on the books of a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. I don't know. I think that could change, though, Jack. Uh, Yeah, I've got to admit I've been a little focused on the spending negotiations without uh, catching up. That's keeping you busy, yeah. All right, well, coming up, we're going to talk more about the shutdown and more about Congresswoman Oma because she has – found herself at odds with Democratic leadership and virtually every Republican. Panel stays, and remember, you can download the Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com and on iHeartRadio. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Welcome back. At this time, lawmakers up on Capitol Hill are getting ready to head into a behind-closed-doors meeting to continue to try to negotiate a deal to avert another partial government shutdown. Meanwhile, President Trump is en route to El Paso, Texas. He's going to deliver an address, a campaign-style rally of sorts. He says big crowds are expected. He just tweeted that out later this evening uh, on the border, on uh, funding for the wall, enhanced fencing, uh, uh, and whatnot. Uh, they're getting closer to a deal. Lawmakers say they're optimistic, but these are fragile negotiations. And staffers at the staffing level, I was up on Capitol Hill today, they're not really sure what's going to happen, to be completely honest. There's also been some other developments up on Capitol Hill, which is why I'm so glad that Daniel Lippman, Politico Playbook co-author, is with us for the hour, as well as Jack Fitzpatrick, my colleague, Bloomberg Government Congressional reporter freshman democratic representative 
Elan Omar, a Democrat from Minnesota, publicly apologized today, Jack, uh, after an anti-Semitic tweet that she tweeted out. Uh, and she says that she, quote, unquote, unequivocally apologizes for tweets that were condemned by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and virtually every other lawmaker up on Capitol Hill. Now, Congresswoman Omar is one of the few Muslims in Congress, and uh, she had tweeted out, I believe when the anti-Semitic tweet came out, it was on uh, February 10th. So that would have been yesterday. Yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and she's, she linked to a reporter, Glenn Greenwald, who was linking to an article about Kevin McCarthy, uh, who was criticizing Congresswoman Omar for her criticism of Israel. And she has been very critical of Israel. One of, uh, and she then tweeted to this reporter, quote unquote, it's all about the Benjamin's baby and then a music emoji. That's anti-Semitic. Right. That's what she apologized for. That was also, I think there was one other tweet when somebody asked something about uh, why do so many lawmakers support Israel, and she said APAC, uh, referring to the organization that lobbies on behalf of uh, pro-Israel policies. Those two combined were basically her saying that the pro-Israel uh, money is uh, is influencing lawmakers in a huge way. It went beyond, uh, you know, a criticism of foreign policy. It went beyond criticism of money in politics. It was pretty specifically about pro-Israel money, which is not surprising to see she ended up having to apologize for that. And also, if you just look at the facts that most of these members who uh, are in Congress they would be supporting Israel no matter what. And so even if there was no APAC, most of them are strongly pro-Israel, uh, and they aren't getting marching orders from APAC. Their constituents are pro-Israel. And that's not to say that there isn't a legitimate argument to be had about uh, you know, our policies in Israel and Palestine, but uh, to bring in anti-Semitic tropes is just not appropriate. There is, you know, that's just... Uh, and and her colleagues recognize that uh, we should stick to the policy here. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to read her statement. She tweeted, or she tweeted a statement, and in her tweet, she said, "Listening and learning, but standing strong." And then she had that arm emoji. But her statement says, "Quote: Anti-Semitism is real, and I am grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic." tropes. My intention is never to offend my constituents or Jewish Americans as a whole. We have to always be willing to step back and think through criticism, just as I expect people to hear me when others attack me for my identity. This is why I unequivocally apologize. At the same time, I reaffirm the problematic role of lobbyists in our politics, whether it be APAC, the NRA, or the fossil fuel industry. It's gone on too long, and we must be willing to address it. She's on the House Foreign Relations Committee, Jack. Yeah. Why? I mean, is there pressure on Speaker Pelosi for her to be removed? Well, that was kind of the first reaction to her apology from critics of hers. You see some prominent people with a lot of Twitter followers, Ben Shapiro, et cetera, saying, why is she on this 
committee that's directly relevant to uh, it, policies toward Israel. Uh, the question is, is that pressure going to come from anyone who didn't already criticize Nancy Pelosi? Do you think it's enough for Speaker Pelosi? I don't know. I mean, they, they took Steve King off of his committees after his comments on white, uh, white supremacy. Racist comments? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that long... was Speaker – and I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, or that, that, was the, that was the Republicans. That, and the, so the Republicans removed Congressman Steve King after his racist remark and stripped him of his assignments. Littman? And also, uh, you know, Steve King had a history of making these types of comments. Usually when uh, a congressman or anyone in public life says one thing that is racist or anti-Semitic, there are previous examples that you can find. And that's true with uh, both Steve King and uh, Congresswoman Omar. Uh, and I think Democrats, if she had not apologized today, then those ch- the chances of her getting removed from that committee would have gone up. And so she was trying to save her committee assignment. I, bet. I don't think the story is over. Uh, personally, I mean, and, and seriously, I, I don't think this story is over. Speaker Pelosi, uh, to, to Lippman's point, uh, said, you know, it's one thing to have a policy debate. It's one thing even to have a, a, a debate on, on whether or not you can cre- – I mean, whatever. But it's an entirely different thing to tweet out what she tweeted out, which is just unequivocally anti-Semitic. Download – we're moving on, but I don't think the story is over, and we'll cover it as well. Download the Sound On podcast on iTunes and at Bloomberg.com, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app, you can also find us on Radio.com and on the iHeartRadio app. Coming up, panel stays. We're talking 2020. We've got two new contenders added to the long, long list of the presidential wannabes. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On. We need different leadership. There's no question about it. We choose truth over lies. I said I would take a hard look after the election. I will not be a candidate for president in 2020. Keep America great. Keep America great soon. Eye on 2020 with Kevin Cirilli. I'm tired of hearing what we can't afford because it's just not true. That was Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat from Massachusetts, announcing that she is running for president. And she made that announcement over the weekend in Massachusetts. Uh, We are very closely following the developments of the 2020 presidential race. It's never too early to talk about presidential politics. And in fact, if I am being fully honest, it is a big reason of why I wanted to be a political reporter in the first place, because as a kid, I was hooked on every presidential race from a very young age. Daniel Lippman is the co-author of Politico Playbook, another Politico junkie his entire life, as well as Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government congressional reporter. So that was Senator Elizabeth Warren Lippman. Where does she fit into the uh, into the mix? So she's uh, trying to get the very progressive side of the base, which might be contested by Bernie Sanders if he hops in. Uh, and, you know, she's been dogged by those Native American, that Native American controversy, which has really put her back a little bit. And she, but she's trying to put that behind her. And, and with her, she has a clear advantage that when people think of Elizabeth Warren, they think that she's a consumer advocate. They don't know exactly what Kamala Harris stands for. Maybe they know that she's a former prosecutor, but... That's great, you know. I totally, I, I mean, I, I respectfully disagree with, because uh, I think in a crowded field, the issue of the Native American thing, I, I, in a way, 
I think that her critics won't vote for her anyway, uh, with or without the Native American uh, criticism. I also think that what you said about big ideas, no matter what you think of Senator Elizabeth Warren, you know what she stands for. You know you can identify policy similarly in a way with Senator Sanders if he decides to to get back into the race. But with, with Senator Warren, you know that she's a progressive. You know that she's uh, what she advocates for. You might not like it, you might like it, but but you know what she stands for, Jack. Yeah, she's a known commodity, and I, I do think you're right that if this uh, Native American thing bothers a huge number of people, that's more of a criticism that's going to come from Trump supporters than from Democrats themselves. If she got to a, a general election and you've got somebody who's well-established as, as you said, the, the consumer advocate kind of type against Trump, and he's uh, hitting her on Native American issues. I don't think he can actually send that message all that well. He just, you know, made a joke about the trail of tears on Twitter. I'm I, not sure that's going to take her down. I think where it becomes interesting in a primary is if if her if the other folks who are running against her say, "Will you be able to defend yourself against President Trump?" That to me is because because when there's so many of them running, right? The, then they're going to be like, "Well, how would you?" How would you on the debate stage respond to him making fun of that particular issue? And that, I think, is the test that she's going to have to, to speak to, 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 which I think is what you're saying as well. Yeah, yeah. Although she, oh, I think she's the kind of candidate who potentially could put other candidates right. on the defense on actual policy issues and, and point to what she's been, what she's been working towards. And Pete, that's such a good point because I've covered her on Senate banking literally since I came to Washington about seven years ago. I mean, and anyone who has seen Senator Elizabeth Warren go up against a banking CEO, a la Wells Fargo, and seen her in a hearing room, she knows. I mean, she knows how to how to be prosecutorial uh, against folks. So and she know, knows her stuff. She, she yeah, has she's, a clear. She knows what yeah. uh, grasp of the policy issues and what changes she wants that she thinks will make uh, American consumers and average people thrive better in this global economy. Yeah, I think she's a really, really interesting uh, individual to watch. And, and she is, you know, she's headed, I think, on like a seven-state tour. Someone else who's running, Senator Amy Klobuchar. She is a Democrat. Take a listen to what she had to say uh, the other yesterday uh, when she announced that she was running. We are tired of the shutdowns and the showdowns of the gridlock and the grandstanding. Today... On this snowy day on this island, we say enough is enough. That was Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota. She also is announcing that that she's uh, running for for president. She's someone who I think has has good relationships on both sides of the aisle uh, in terms of working across the aisle. But but um, yeah. Yeah, she's she's respected on both sides of the aisle and reasonably well liked among voters. If you're looking at the polarization in Congress right now and you start looking at the polls and see which Democrats are actually not that unpopular among Republicans, Amy Klobuchar has an appeal to Democrats and Republicans and centrists. Uh, and I think that kind of I don't know if that's going to help her stand out in a Democratic primary, but I think she does come across to a lot of people as very electable and okay so president we got to talk about what trump tweeted because he said quote well it happened again amy klobuchar announced that she is running for president talking proudly of fighting global warming while standing in a virtual blizzard of snow ice and freezing temperatures bad timing by the end of her speech she looked like a snowman 
parentheses woman. <laughs> I mean, I think virtually every scientist would agree is that it it will still snow despite climate change. Yeah, that's not you know I covered uh, climate change and the environment. Forgot about that. E and E publishing, E and E news, uh, and throwback. You, <laughs> yeah, and when you uh, talk to scientists. Uh, and you know other global leaders, climate change is real. It's already happening. And but but to, not to have that debate. But to the <laughs> point of, I mean, Trump is literally live tweeting these announcements. I mean, how do they? How, do you think it's going to be a challenge, or at least if you're a Democrat and you're voting in the primary, how will your choice fight back against the Trump critiques or Trump attacks? I think you just have to be well prepared for them uh, and to have a ready response. And I think Klobuchar had a pretty good uh, announcement that actual day, but the the few days preceding it, she was dogged by those stories in BuzzFeed and Huffington Post that got picked up widely uh, on different networks about how uh, her you know staffers, her former staffers, complained that she was not a good boss and was abusive to them. And so that. That may be a, a you know a week long story, and maybe people don't care about it in a few months. But in your in a democratic primary, you have to be seen as someone who is favorable to workers. Yeah, I, I do want to note that uh, some staffers who work for her raised the issue that if she were a man, yeah. would those stories you know matter, or would they no not matter? Would they would they even have been written? Yeah. Um, uh, you also that President Trump on offense live tweeting the. Uh, announcements, so to speak. But the Trump, inside Trump world, you had a big scoop, Littman, on uh, President Trump's administration, a little bit on defense. Yeah, so last week, Axios' Jonathan Swan and Alexi McCammond uh, broke the news of, uh, you know, they got copies of three months of Trump's schedules, private schedules, which showed that 60% of the time he was in executive time, uh, which uh, is code for not working in Is meetings. it, though? I don't know if exact. I mean... But it's you know the and when you talk to Trump aides like I did, uh, it's used for uh, watching television, making calls. He makes lots of calls, reading the paper, responding to people. But the story that I broke was about how uh, they are really hot on the trail of who leaked this from inside the White House. About to catch a leaker. Yes. About- how do you catch a leaker? I mean, serious serious question from your reporting. What? How? How does? How does a politician catch a leaker? We've got like less than a minute. So they have 400 people who get this schedule in the White House, and they are looking at you know forensic computer records from the White House IT office to try to track down those you know p- potentially a career government employee who would have leaked that. Wow, to catch a leaker, never something that Republicans and Democrats in Washington D.C. never want to have to play an episode of here in Washington. My thanks to Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government congressional reporter. Busy times for you, my friend. And, of course, Daniel Littman, Bloomberg. I'm sorry. Daniel <laughs> Littman, Politico, co-author of Politico Playbook. Coming up tomorrow, Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, we've got a jam-packed show. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Remember, you can check us out cross-platform now. Thanks for listening. Check us out. The countdown has begun. This May, a 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.